Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. It's June 3, 2014, and this is episode 424. Every so often in history, someone writes a book that changes everything. A book so profound that everyone that wants to live not only a creative life, but a richer, fuller life will read. Well, my friend David Dusherman has just done that, again. His earlier best-selling books changed things. David has given photographers and artists a vocabulary that I feel was missing in modern photography. Now he's given us permission and the courage to live the creative life that many of us long to live, and I even believe a means to identify what that life might be to you in a beautiful anarchy when the life creative becomes the life created. For links, visit mbp.ac424. For now, though, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with David Dushman. Okay, so I'm delighted to be sitting here this fine morning in Tokyo uh, with my friend David Dushman, who's over in Vancouver. And we're going to be talking about David's new book. And it's, it's probably another game changer. So congratulations on A Beautiful Anarchy, David, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Martin. It's good to be back. So A Beautiful Anarchy, you sent me a preview copy uh, that I read last week and I'm blown away. I mean, it's times like this. I'm always proud to be able to say that we're friends, but you know, it's one of these times that I feel like in awe of what you do. It's just incredible. Um, you've done, basically, you've done it again. I think you've, uh, I know that you don't like it when I, when I blow smoke up your ass like this, so I'm not going to do that very much, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think when, when I first read, um, within the frame, I, I felt as though you'd changed photography, literature and the just creative life sort of based literature, but a beautiful anarchy, your latest book that's just come out is, has done that again in a very, very beautiful and um, really profound way. So we're going to talk about that today. Let's uh, just start, you know, tell us in a, a, like an elevator speech of what beautiful anarchy is. Yeah, thanks. I, I think the uh, I think the subtitle covers it fairly well. The subtitle is when the life creative becomes the life created. Um, and I, I, a number of things kind of came to bear in my own life that made me want to write this, uh, even just regardless of making it into a book, but just the need to to set this stuff on on paper. Mm. Um, the the but it also really it all started with the accident uh, that I had in um, in Italy three years ago, and and I had already been sort of thinking about the the brevity of life and the importance of being very intentional about life, mm. and then the accident kind of you know took everything up to eleven, mm. and. Uh, it, the, the way that I have taught photography has always been fairly consistent, but I think, it, again, it kind of went up a, a notch after this accident, and I began to become, you know, I've talked about vision a lot, and and people sometimes get a little confused. What does vision mean? Because really it's a metaphor. And lately I've kind of ditched the metaphor, although I still think it's really useful, but I talk more about intent mm. or intention. Yeah. What do you want out of this photograph? And so I started writing A Beautiful Anarchy. The, the name came from a blog post I did when I was talking about creativity and, and how in art there are no rules. Um, mm. Even the idea of, and ultimately I know it's semantic, but even the idea of you got to know the rules before you can break them, I would rather 
embrace a paradigm that says really truly in this realm of human experience and endeavor that there aren't rules. There are principles, and I think principles are helpful, but um, the rules are, I think, um, I don't know, I've just never really got along well with Mm -hmm. the rules. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when someone talks about the rule of thirds, I would rather talk about why the so-called rule of thirds works and then allow that principle to guide whether we use it or whether we don't, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than just slavishly adhering to something. And so, this is all kind of the background for starting to write the book. And I wanted to write a book about creativity Mm -hmm. for photographers because we, you can read a hundred books about photography and uh, one of them will talk about the creative process, but mostly it's technical. Mm. And and yet the hardest work of photographers is done in the creative sphere. It's it's done with, yes, um, a, I hope, growing mastery of our craft, but it's it's also done um, from the heart and from the mind. Mm. And and that's where the creativity happens. And so the more I started writing the book, this book, and people have always said, you know, David, you're, you're not just writing about photography, you're writing about life. Mm. As this book kind of evolved, as the creative process is, you know, is want to do it, the thing became something else. And I realized I was writing about life and the way that we create our photographs and that we engage in the creative process, whether we're photographers or potters or writers, is the same way in which we engage in creating the life that we want. And uh, it's often been said, you know, photography is about life. It's not the other way around. And I very much agree with that. And I think, so looking at the gift that photographer that photography gives me in terms of recognizing moments and the brevity of time and all of that sort of kind of, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, this poet warrior artsy fartsy <laughs> stuff, it's, it's foundational. It's not a luxury that, well, I'll, I'll think about that later. No, you, you learn your craft on an ongoing basis as much as it interests you or as much as you feel you need to, but that creative stuff, that, uh, that how do, you know, people say, where do your ideas come from? Well, that's kind of part of this book. It's also an urge to act. Creativity is not just good ideas. It's shipping. It's launching whatever that product is, that project. And the book talks about time and it talks about money. It talks about uh, all kinds of aspects that inform and are affected by the creative life. Mm-hmm. Um so that is a very long rambling <laughs> yeah. question. I think we're at, we're at about floor, floor 800 at the moment, but that's, that's fine. I've been um, obviously trying to come up with various ways to tell people how great a beautiful anarchy is. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a, as wordy a person as in, you know, in a good way as you are, you know, in that I, I don't sure do... A few th- people are. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I mean, like you say, I mean, the... The poet, poet warrior, um, you know, example that you that you use, it's something that not a lot of people can do, and I think that that is partly be, you, you're able to do that in such a good way because of the life that you're living, and your background and everything, and um, and this is why, you know, the books that you that you've written and and now with a beautiful anarchy are so, um, you know, they, they they empower people. I feel as though, you know, I I finished reading it and one of the things that came into mind was partly, I mean, I'm already living a, a creative life and partly thanks to you and the support that uh, that we get from Craft and Vision. But you took touching it on the book that people often say to you that, you know, they, they really wish that they could be, uh, you know, that they could do what you want to do. But 
um, a lot of people don't really, they want that without doing, you mentioned this, they want that without doing the work or giving or the sacrifices that you've made to be able to live the life that you're leaving, uh, leading. And so I think that, you know, in the book, you give people practical advice on how to actually live this life. And it's advice that they can use. It may be not, okay, if you do this, this will happen. But mm. it's, it's a broad, in a broader sense, you're empowering people to live the life that a lot of people want to live. And there's a lot to be said for, for the sacrifices. Um, you know, the people don't want to, don't want to give up their, as you say, they don't want to give up the television or the, or the, the, the house and things like that. You lived your, your nomadic life for a long time. Um, there's a lot of sacrifices made to be made to live a life like this, if if that's the way you choose to do it. Uh, but in some sense, there's always going to be sacrifices, um, and people generally don't want to make those sacrifices, but they they want the end results that of the life that you're living. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. I think you know when you f find the things that you love, I don't know that they feel like sacrifices. Uh, I mean, th they might initially, you know, when you tell people that maybe they should just stop spending less time on Facebook or television, mm -hmm. it it may feel that way. But I think I. Th I like to approach it from the other angle. I'm not sure people actually understand that living the life that they want to live is possible. And in many cases, I don't think they've given themselves permission mm. to do that. And, you know, a lot of people will, will say, uh, in fact, uh, the person for whom I wrote this book in part was one of those people that say, well, I'm not really creative. This is a book mm. about living a creative life in all of its, whether you're, uh, whether you're making a photograph, making uh, a family or making a business, mm. it is about creativity. And I think we're all creative. And I think if people were given, and I hate saying given permission, but it, it, it works, I guess, in, in this case, if people understood that this was possible. They could have a life that was, if not the life that will fulfill them, because I'm not sure there's any one specific life that will fulfill us or that will be free of trouble or anything like that. In fact, I think the struggles and, and that sort of thing give our life uh, more meaning, not less. Mm. Um, but, a, but a life that, that they really, they love waking up every day and saying, I have meaningful work. I have something that I'm creating that I love. And yes, in some cases, they they will feel that they have sacrificed something. But I generally feel like a sacrifice is giving up something really, really big for not really much in return. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Otherwise, it just feels like an exchange. Yeah. I, I know that everything, every choice I make in life as a creative person, uh, if I want this one thing, whatever that is, there will be a price for it, either my time or my money or uh, a, a lifestyle change or, or something, there will be a price for it. Mm. And, and and I partly I encourage people just to look very intentionally at that and realize, you know what, maybe you, maybe you just start small. I, it's okay that you don't quit your day job and become a quote-unquote professional creative person. Mm. You could do it slowly and, and walk in through the back door and test the waters. There is no one way to do this. And mm. again, that's, that's this idea of a beautiful anarchy that any force in our life that is controlling us there are creative solutions around that. And mm. so, yes, sacrifice, but I think more than that, it's giving up 
the lesser thing like television for mm-hmm. the greater thing, which is the ability to create work we're proud of and to sustainably do that thing. Some people would be, would so benefit from just like selling their house and putting the money in savings, renting something cheaper and traveling and doing the things that they love. But there's a lot of scripts and patterns out there that people subscribe to without even knowing. They don't mm-hmm. know that it's possible that they could have a different life, even with kids. You know, people say, oh, it's just, it's well and good that you can do this, but I have kids. Well, I, I've seen lots of stories of parents who pulled their kids out of schools, got on a sailboat and sailed around the world for a couple of years mm-hmm. or, or put the kids in, a, in an Airstream trailer. And they told the family around, you know, North America for a year or two or, you know, whatever. There's lots of alternate ways to do these things. So. Mm. And I think probably more than kids, um, I think getting the spouse on board is probably going to be the biggest problem for a lot of people. Uh, and I know that, I mean, I, I started small with, with my business. I, you know, the podcast and then the, just uh, starting to grow my, uh, my social media sort of footprint, as they say, um, got me to the point where I was able to start getting people on tours. And then that gave me the confidence to think, okay, well, maybe there's a living here. Um, but for me, the biggest, the biggest hurdle was not so much in myself and, you know, whether we call it a sacrifice or not, I mean, dumping a job that was that was um paying a lot of money money that a lot of people would would love to be earning um and just saying okay i want to walk away from that and maybe earn a quarter or a third of that for at least a few years that for me was was not a sacrifice because it's something that i I would i wanted to do but for my wife it was a big Mm. thing um you know what do you think about that side of it i mean i'm sure that the majority of people if you're married you know you've You've got to be able to talk someone else into living your dream with you. I th- I think so. I, I mean, <laughs> it, it's a it's a very complicated conversation when we get into you know, <laughs> relationships and and marriages. The the reality. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. The reality is that there are some people that are. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get anger mail from this. They're they're married to the wrong people. They are married to there are uh, toxic relationships yeah, yeah. of all kinds out there. And so for some people, they are simply their biggest problem is not I want to do photography their biggest problem is you need to fix your relationship how however that is because if you have this burning dream and your partner's not on board with that hmm. uh, my feeling is if you finally get the courage up to say to your partner this is what I dream about they should say well it's about time because I've known that for years hmm. if this is a big surprise to them and they're shocked and horrified that you would want to you know drag the family through, <laughs> well, you have bigger problems than than photography or whatever creative <laughs> endeavor that yeah. you have so that yeah. that's one thing but I think Ultimately, the book isn't encouraging people to to divorce partners or anything. The book <laughs> is encouraging people to find creative solutions. And there's this great line from a Chinese poet who said, what's in the way is the way. Mm. And so these obstacles, they are not a barrier to living your dreams. They are just, they will help shape how you live your dreams. Mm. So find a solution. F- sit with your partner and say, okay, you know, uh, this is what I dream of. Mm. Clearly you have a slightly different dream. Let's find a space in which these two dreams can can best coexist. And maybe yeah. it's a progressive thing. We build to it over five years, but you you cannot expect your partner to be on board with you being miserable. You just, you can't. If they truly love you, they will want to find a solution for you. So I think initially, yes, there are a lot of 
there are a lot of fears and obstacles in the creative life. And one, I think if we're honest with them, and especially with the people in our lives, go to them and say, hey, this, I really want to try this, is how can we make this work? What changes can we make? And, you know, because most family, it's financial, you know, most families that are photographers that have all of this gear, they have at least some disposable income. Mm. So the question is, if it's financial, the question is, how do we reduce our debt so that we have more income to spend on this kind of thing? Mm. How can we spend less because money not spent is money earned essentially, you know, can you over the next three years build slowly to being out of debt and having uh, living well within your means. Maybe mm. it's a question of app. Maybe the question is not relationships at all. Maybe it's really a question of you've been spending your money like a moron for five years mm. and you need to spend a little, the price you're going to pay for for living your dream is going to be um, paid up on the front end by you putting getting a part-time job and working a little harder to get out of the debt. Mm. Some people, uh, they just don't want it badly enough to do that. Other people do. Mm. So... Um, but yeah. how do we really, I mean, it's relationships. It's like anything. You've got to find a creative way to do it. But the only way that's not acceptable mm. is just running and hiding and not talking about it. Yeah. Because that's not getting anyone anywhere. And I think probably allows that relationship to continue in, um, in an atmosphere of, uh, I don't know, inauthenticity at mm. least. I mean, I, I would imagine that the best relationships are those where each partner is free to dream and talk about how can we dream these dreams together. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm fortunate enough that, you know, that, that my partner and I dream similar kinds of dreams and mm. we enjoy traveling. We're hatching a plan now to, to spend 2016 traveling around the world and we're just going to give up our place and, mm. and uh, you know, I'll probably sell my Jeep and make make the decisions I need to put us in a place for where for that year we can travel around the world without coming back to, uh, coming back to a home. Mm. So, you know, it's, uh, but it's, life is confusing and complicated mm. and that's what creativity is about. Ultimately it's problem solving. If you can't problem solve your way through some of these kind of relational problems or financial problems, then what, what are we bringing to the table as creative people when we approach our, you know, the mm. visual arts or, or our music or whatever, mm. uh, yeah. Problem solving skills are, um, you know, they're interdisciplinary and they, they cross all, all these boundaries. Mm, mm. Yeah, that, that's such a profound answer. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting here. I often find that when we talk or when I read your books, it's as though, I mean, obviously you add so much to the ideas that people have, but I often feel that you also, you take all of the jumbled ideas and things that are in, in my head it's like doing the laundry. You you go off and you you take all you take all of my ideas, throw them in the washing machine, and then press and dry them and put them into little compartment compartmentalized drawers for me. It's like, okay, this is this is how you should be thinking about this stuff, and you just did it again with the you know the your, what you said about the relationship. Because I mean, I'm I'm fortunate that although my wife was horrified at the thought of me leaving a job <laughs> that I, that I, you know, that it kept as well, kept, you know, money in the bank and regular, it, w it was a great job. I enjoyed doing it, but I loved photography more. And she could see that the day job was starting to eat away at my soul. And I mean, the work itself wasn't, it was all of the corporate crap that comes with it. And I just got really, really tired. Into at some points, I got really, really tired of having to deal with um, things that were totally out of my control. And you know, I think that she she saw that, 
and she knew that that a change was coming she, like you said she she knew that it was going to happen one day um and and that's not to say that she was on board 100% she was stressed stressed out and i remember her saying a couple of times over the first year where she sees me walking working from from dawn until bed you know get up and then start working straight after breakfast and i normally don't stop until i until my head hits the pillow at night um and but she would say so okay you're working like a dog when's the money coming well, you know <laughs> when, when are we actually going to see some money coming and i um i remember having this conversation that, i mean marketing all of that as you say and it, you've said a lot of times but in a beautiful anarchy as well it's all creative pursuit uh building a business you know whatever you're creating it's it's creative and mm. i i would say to her look I, I can't say exactly. I, I, let me take I, what I was going to say was she'd often say, okay, what are you doing? What, you know, what are you actually spending your time on? I'm saying, I'm doing this. It's marketing. It's, it's building tools for the back end. It's doing this. And she'll say, well, how can you map that to X amount of dollars or yen that is going to come into our bank account? Mm. And I'm saying, you can't. I'm sowing seeds and I don't know exactly when those seeds are going to grow into flowers or whatever. I said, but they've got to be sown because if you don't sow the seeds, then nothing's going to grow, you know, and yeah. it takes time. And so the first year was really a lot. It was a lot about that. Yeah. And I, th I think, you know, you, you've hit on something that I think is so core to all of this discussion, whether you're talking about creativity as a photographer or as a business person or even in, you know, just in life in general, hmm. we are so addicted to certainty. Mm. We... Because there is an illusion of safety in certainty. It feels that way. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that there's any more safety in certainty than there is uncertainty. But, you know, we don't <laughs> like the unknown, mm. um, you know, because, you know, we think we're certain that we have a corporate job that's going to be there tomorrow, but it might not. Oh, yeah. And some egghead running the company or some shareholder or stakeholder may make a decision that into which we don't factor. And suddenly that very certain job is, is gone. Mm. Um, our health, you know, we think everything's so great until it's not. And, mm. and I think for the creative, if you can take certainty off the table as, as a guarantee and see it for the illusion it is, that it is and realize that we're always working in uncertainty, mm. whether we're creating a piece of art, like you're writing a book and you don't know whether it's going to, to come off. It could be a total flop. Mm. It could, that flop could teach you the things you need then to make that best-selling book or, you know, that personal project that finally gets you whatever it is you're hoping for, the recognition or the exposure. Um, you really don't know. But I think if, if we go in and we, this is, I talk about this in the book, I talk about fear and risk and everything is a risk. Mm. And, and the question is, what risk am I, can I afford to pay and what can I not? For mm. everyone, it'll be different. But I can't, for me, the risk, people say, oh, you so, you know, you, you travel the world and what about the risk? And I, I remind them, well, I travel to all of these places where, you know, the U.S. State Department on their website says, you know, that American citizens shouldn't travel to and there's travel advisors. I go to all those places completely safe and it's in you know, it's in Tuscany, Italy, that mm -hmm. I get medically evacuated. <laughs> Nobody warned me about Tuscany. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, th I thought I knew where the risks lay and where they didn't. And the reality is we never really truly know where the risks lie. Mm -hmm. Of course, it could be argued that I probably should have stayed off the wall. But um, <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is part of the, we will never be free from the fear. We will never be free from uh, 
from partners that say, where's the money coming from? But we have to, part of the job of a creative is to find a, a new relationship with uncertainty mm. and trust the process and and work. I mean, <laughs> creative people, the ones that are paying their bills and aren't whining about you know, stock markets, you know, the, the, the stock photography market or whatever thing they're, you know, they haven't been discovered, whatever thing that creative people <laughs> sometimes mm. whine about, mm. the creative ones that are making it, whatever their definition of making it is, are the ones that are working their asses off to mm. do it, mm. right? This is not about pie in the sky stuff. This is ultimately about if you're serious about being a creative, you're, you're going to work harder than the guy who's just working for some corporate paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because it's your thing and you are now solely responsible to put the money on the table. And, and I think ultimately learning to, to approach uncertainty, learning to approach fear and risk, these are the things that keep people from living their, their most creative life. And, and because they, they, they think that by not choosing to step into that known risk that mm -hmm. they are avoiding risk entirely. Of course, they're not. Because if you choose not to step into, say, the life of a world traveler, you are you are staying in the risk of uh, getting to the end of your life and never having done the thing you wanted to do. So there's a risk on both sides. The big question is, which one are you prepared to, to die knowing that you've spent your life on? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get to the end of my life with regrets for things that I have not done. Mm -hmm. um, Life is very short and anyone that's, you know, and, and maybe it's a midlife crisis, I don't know, but 40 years old, you start looking at um, half of that life gone. Did I do the things I wanted to in that 40 years? Mm. Because the next 40 is going to go by just as fast, if not faster. And yeah. it will only, my photographs will only be what they are when I approach them intentionally and with vision. My life will only be what it will one day become. I will only become the person I'm going to with intention. Hmm. Um, and part of that intention is reacting to life circumstances because I, I know full well that not everything goes the way we plan. In fact, I have a very low regard for planning and goal setting. Mm. And a much bigger regard for very short-term, actionable, just do the things that you want to do. And they will accumulate into things that we never expected. Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, I've got a couple of things that I'm going to have to say before I forget them because I'm terrible for this. Um, one is that, you know, on, on something that you just mentioned, they say that we... Um, we our perspective or, or how we feel, you know, they say time fly, time goes faster as you get older. I, mm. I read somewhere, and obviously I don't know if this is true, it's probably just conjecture, but um, they say that we, a year in our life always feels like, um, a, a, like a, a fraction of the whole. So if you're, when you're five years old, if you're going to live to your 70, say when you're five years old, uh, a it, it, that's like a four, one fourteenth of your life gone, but when you're forty years old, that's half, that, or thirty five years old, that's half of your life gone. You mm -hmm. know, so so you know, and, and as you get closer to the seventy, obviously you, you're almost at a hundred percent. So, um, you know, I can, I can, I can relate to that. I mean, I don't think it's midlife crisis as such, but it's, you know, that when you when you're in your forties, we both are. It's like it's one of those times where, you know, that there's there's only a finite amount of time left and and we both a couple of years ago almost had that like rubbed out in just in in a, a couple of seconds it was it was a strange time for the both of us so mm. you know i mean you, you've got to make the most of what i mean i would have i would have hated 
like I think I've mentioned this before, but when I found out I had that brain tumor, the first time I actually cried was when I realized I'd not been to Africa yet. I, I'd got a mm. book, I'd got a main bucket list of three places, Antarctica, Iceland, and Africa. And I, I had just come back from Antarctica when I start when I, we found that I'd got the tumor. And the first time I cried was when I realized I'd not stood on the red soil of Africa and, and smelt the dust and, uh, you know, that, mm. that whole thing, that was what made me cry. So it was like, it was a, as you say, it was a regret for something that I'd not done. Um, fortunately I I've been now, I've been to Af Iceland as well. And I made these things happen because it was, it was something that I didn't want to leave this life without doing. Um, but the other thing that, <laughs> that kind of leads into it, the other thing that I just thought of you, you talk, you were talking about the risk and how, how, you know, you almost lost your life in Tuscany. I, <laughs> this is really just a, just a, a funny story, but I, I remember when I got to Africa, uh, one of the things that we were photographing one day was wild horses. And it was, you know, obviously there are no real wild horses in Africa, but some of the early settlers had taken horses that escaped and there's now herds of wild horses. And a friend of mine from the West Coast of the US was, we, we were standing there and one of the horses was getting a little bit feisty as we, we were photographing them. And <laughs> he said, wouldn't that be uncool? You come all the way to Africa and get killed by a horse. <laughs> yeah, there's so many other things that could kill you, but uh, yeah, now I um, I'm just sitting here getting all to topped up creatively again by by the conversation. Um, you, you talked about risk, and I remember doing some in my old job. We were, we, we did some financial uh, financial training, and uh, one of the things that the guy there he talked about risk one e one evening. It was like a night school thing that I went to once a week for a while. Um, and uh, this guy talked about risk, and he said, uh, "What's the what's the risk uh, involved in jumping in front of a um, of a speeding train or something like that?" And everyone's saying, "Well, that's really risky." And he said, "No, there's no risk. You will die. There's no there's no question about it. There's zero percent risk because you know the outcome the moment you jump in front of that train. You're going to die, but what what you perceive as the risk is is something different." And so, you know, that, I don't know, there's just a few things that came into my mind as you, as you were talking there. Well, I, I, again, I think it's true. And I think it comes back to our relationship with what is certain and what is uncertain. We want so much mm. for things to be certain. Yeah. And, and the older I get, the more, the more relaxed I am about my need for certainty. And in fact, the, the more I enjoy sort of the mystery and the wonder of uncertainty. Mm. Um, now, I, I'm the first to admit that some of that comes with kind of getting your financial house in order mm. and getting, you know, being free of debt and having um, having some sort of some, some apparent safety nets mm. around me. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I think to, to, to say, well, that's is not achievable simply because I have debt. Um, well, the, the first thing is just get out of that debt. I mean, we have, we have such a short life and as far as we know, one of them, hmm. um, it, it pays to get ruthless with everything that that holds us back, that that has a power of control over our lives, whether that's unhealthy relationships, whether it's finances or our relationship with fear. Um, the more we can, I think, consciously address fear and uncertainty, the more, one, the more interesting our art will be. And uh, the more risks, because the more risks we will take, but also I think, you know, where the risks are greater, the rewards are greater. And one of the, the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of the hero's journey. 
which is kind of a, a, um, a way of, of discussing stories yeah. and, and common, common patterns in, in stories, at least in Western civilization. Mm. And, and the thing that I love about it is it basically says the the hero's journey says everyone is the hero of their own story. Mm. And and every story starts with a refusal of the call. Everyone is called to something and says, no, no, that's, you know, I can't possibly do it. That's not for me. I'm not creative would be kind of the, the refusal of the call. And yet there's something that eventually pulls them into the story. And story is driven forward by, uh, one, by the longing, the thing that, that the hero wants or is trying to, to achieve. And two, the obstacles that come up, the obstacles aren't never stop the the hero at least if in a good story because otherwise it's just the end of the movie we mm-hmm. all go home kind of yeah. wondering what we spent our 20 bucks on but <laughs> um, the obstacles provide ways for the hero to to see himself in a new light to change to grow to to get closer to the goal mm-hmm. um, and and to do so in a, in a way that changes them and I think the creative life is about change it's about becoming the people that that we're becoming but it is a journey and there are obstacles and it's not easy but i i I really think if people were more willing to address this issue of uncertainty and fear Mm. there would be a uh, maybe in some ways sort of a greater joy in the exploration of art Mm. rather than Mm. just you know um nice capture man and Mm. um you know uh, people competing and mm. instead of competing, they might be more willing to just trust their own voice and go out and make the art that they want to instead of worrying about what pleases judges, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that there's, I mean, I, I know that one of the conversations that me and my wife have had is, over the last few years as well is she'll often say, where, where does your confidence come from? And I, I think that one of the reasons that I'm able to, um, to cope with the, the risks or the uncertainty of, of living this kind of life is because I'm confident that no matter what, a, what happens, even if, um, you know, say an, in an, uh, hopefully an extreme example, even if I was to go blind, you know, obviously that I know that there are blind photographers, but you know, in general, it's going to be a tough job to do if you can't see. Um, I would imagine. <laughs> so even, I'm pretty confident that no matter what happens, I'm, not going to fail to the point where I end up living under a bridge or something. You know, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, I've, I'm confident that I could probably even go back into my old job if necessary, heaven forbid. I'd, that would be soul-destroying. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure before all of that that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to continue to, you know, run the business and, and live the life that, I, that I'm planning and, and I'm already living to a degree. Um, I'm just confident in my ability to make it happen and to con- continue to to make art and to continue to to cre- be creative about how I run I run my business. So do you think that that confidence is is a part of it? I th- I think it is, but I think we um I think it's not as simple as that. I think for people that are listening that maybe don't feel that they have confidence to say, well, I don't have confidence and, and so that's my excuse. Mm. Um, there's never an excuse for not creating art. There are people that make art of their lives by, you know, mountain climbing with only with only two arms and no legs. And mm. there are blind rock climbers and there are painters that paint with their feet. And mm. when I look at what people do, and there's a whole chapter in the book about uh, embracing constraints, both in the creative process yeah. and just as a way of life, mm. I think... 
ultimately there are never any excuses. You, the the great art of history has been created by all kinds of people from syphilitic, you know, bums in the streets of Paris to to um, I, I mean to to rulers of empires and and everything in between. Uh, Helen Keller, my gosh, if she, if she's not an example of someone mm. who's you know, and she she said uh, that life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing. And and if she has that perspective, I think all of us can. But mm. I do think that that confidence is the kind of thing that we can get. It's mm. it's and it's sort of an asset that's waiting out there for us to to uh, to find, but it's not achieved by doing easy things. It's achieved by doing hard things. I am more confident in my ability to survive uh, the things that life throws at me every time life throws something nasty yeah. at me, yeah. uh, and I bounce back and I survive it. And I think you know what. I can do this. I yeah. have now in the last three years learned to walk again three times wow. and I'm, I'm just, I'm in the middle of it now. And yeah. it, it is not easy every time you think, man, haven't we done this before? <laughs> haven't we gone <laughs> yeah. through this? And you know, you go in for another surgery or whatever and, and all of those things you need to relearn. Mm-hmm. But every time I, I have greater confidence that I know how to do this. I can do this. Mm. I will. It'll take time. And, you know, one of the things that I say in the book is we need to be patient with unfinished things. Mm. Part of that is in reference to our art. We Mm. need to not, for example, write off a bad idea just because it sounds like a bad idea because it's bad ideas that bring us to good ideas. Mm. One idea may in fact be bad, but you keep it around for long enough and it'll connect with another truly bad idea. Mm. And the combination of the two might actually be be world-changing. Um, our ideas, our work, the things when we finish our work, whether it's uh, a photograph or a, a book or whatever, the the thing that we finish with is not what we started with. Mm. And to judge it as, um, you know, oh, this idea is bad, this art, this, this photograph sucks, whatever it is we say, um, to do that prematurely is unfair to the to the work because mm-hmm. we haven't yet allowed it to become what it is. It's like saying saying about a, f- a three year old, you know, oh, this human beings, th- this human being sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, he's three years old for crying. <laughs> like, give him some time. Yeah, yeah, and and it's the same thing with the artist. We we ourselves are unfinished things, and we need to be patient with ourselves. We need to not just simply judge ourselves by the fact that we've had one failure. Oh, well, I'm not very good at those things. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, really, I mean, how how many light bulbs did it take for before Thomas Edison came up with a working model? If he'd failed in the first 50, he still would have been 50 away yeah. from that viable thing. Mm-hmm. The process takes time. We need to be patient with ourselves as well. Yeah. So, you know, the, the 19 or 20 year old that approaches me and says, you know, I feel like I've been working on my art forever and I'm not getting anywhere. I can't mm-hmm. go, you're 19, you're 20. And I get the feeling, I get the frustration, but you got to allow yourself to, you know, that's like tasting a wine that's like literally just been smashed and put in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Hey, leave the cork in, mm-hmm. put it in the rack and allow it to season, allow it to become the thing it will eventually become. Right now mm-hmm. it's not wine, it's grape juice. <laughs> um, you know, the example I I, so you can't you can't say this wine's terrible. Well, yeah, but it's not wine. It's grape juice. Yeah. And and I give the example in the book of saying you know if you if you if what you really want is a butterfly, but you can't stand caterpillars, and you go around smashing caterpillars, you're never mm. going to get a butterfly. <laughs> and it's definitely a trite metaphor, it's but I think it works though. because because ultimately the th- the thing that 
the thing that is um, that we're creating, whether it's ourselves or our art um, or a lifestyle or whatever, it it right now it is it doesn't look like what it will become. So we need to be patient and nurture new things and give them their time, and that includes ourselves. Give yourself time to fail and hit rock bottom and bounce up. And life's not easy, and mm. it's and it's definitely not tidy, mm. you know. But mm. then neither is the creative process. Yeah. Well, that's I think that that's exactly where. Um, you know, as I was saying, conf- confidence comes from, it, it, like you said, it, you you get more confident that that you can overcome things by overcoming things. Um, you know, so sure. it, it, it all makes so much sense. Yeah. And I think, Martin, I think convert confidence is a form of uh it's sort of you know you call it you kind of brand it as personal bravery yeah and yeah. and bravery uh it, it, again uh, talk about in the book i've become that guy it's just you know as i i as i as i said in my book um <laughs> but but fear uh, sorry bravery is not the absence of fear brave you know we don't look at a guy who's brave who who doesn't who does uh, has no fear in his life? Hmm. We say that a person is brave or has courage when they they have things that are to be feared and in fact are afraid of, but they act anyway. And there's yeah. this great scene in uh, the Ghost in the Darkness, hmm. um, this uh, Michael Douglas movie, where at one point he's heading off. He's playing the hunter Re- Remington. He's in Africa and he's got to kill these two big uh, kind of rogue man-eating lions. Hmm. And he he's sitting around the campfire with his you know couple of his buddies, and and then sort of just behind him there's a ring of Maasai warriors and they're jumping up and down and they're singing mm. and uh and and he says i'm i'm gonna go now and uh and try it basically he says i'm gonna go try to con- we're all gonna convince ourselves that we're brave and the guy says well i wouldn't have thought bravery would be an issue for for someone like you and he says well you always hope it isn't but you never know and and i really think that to some degree you know we're all kind of pretending to be brave or we all have to it, it's not it's not that we live without fear. It's not mm-hmm. that we live without concerns or doubts. It's that we live with those things and a, a very human ability to say yes, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, in as much as the creative effort is very often kind of following that question, what if? Mm-hmm. Um, courage is often often answered, you know, we answer the fear with the, with the yes, but, mm-hmm. you know, ah, you, could, you could die on that wall in Italy. Yeah, but, you know, I, I might live and look at this great angle, look at this great photograph. <laughs> you, you know, it's, again, a very trite example. It was, it's funny, Martin, you know, the, um, I went back in, into the archives of my blog and the, the blog post that I wrote about about my accent, the initial kind of one where I kind of told everyone, hmm. uh, it was called, and then I fell and it had, you know, pictures of me in the hospital and stuff. Yeah. But the one immediately before it was written, I don't know, literally like a week before, uh, that one. And it, it was called choose your own risk, I think. And it was all about <laughs> living, you know, living a more, much more intentional life and being okay with risk. And so I, I you know, I, I realize there's a lot of people that are saying, yeah, but I, I don't want to, you know, do life threatening stuff. I, I think we're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the risks that are inherent with putting yourself out there as a creative person mm-hmm. and the risk that's inherent in saying to your your partner, you know, your example earlier, Martin, saying to your partner, I'm really unhappy at work and I think there's something more for us. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we've settled and I think we can achieve more and let's talk about how we can do that. That can be a very scary thing. It can be a very scary thing to put your images out for um, criticism, you know, mm. to approach a mentor and say, I need you to give me an honest assessment of my work. Mm. Uh, it can be very scary to read your Amazon reviews. You know, mm. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of these things. I'm not talking about the big, big stuff because 
fear isn't relative. It's not gauged on one to 10. You, you either fear something or you don't. And there mm. may be subtle shades of, of that. But, uh, you know, I, I remember being in, in grade seven and the fear of talking to a girl. Mm. I mean, I'd rather jump off that wall in Italy <laughs> than, you know, than be back there and, and experiencing that level of anxiety over something. Mm. So, so I think it's important that we don't kind of put our fears on, on a scale of one to 10 and say, well, I should be more brave, but nonsense. If you're terrified by something, you're terrified. But I do think that we can approach things that are new in our life. Like, you know, how many of us go to work uh, or, or, you know, our regular grocery store or whatever, the same way every single time. We're creatures of habit. And mm. and my encouragement to people is in your creativity, in your life, um, break out, you know, learn a, learn a new language, eat a new food. Every time you say, well, I, I, I don't really like that or I'm scared of that, mm. uh, face it. You know, mm. don't just kind of shove it back in the box, face it and go, all right, we're going to tackle that. Yeah. Um, a, a fun example, and this is you know, silly, but it's a side note. But uh, when I was in the hospital, uh, my partner Cynthia, we had literally been sort of together for a week, and she said, "You know, I know this is a silly question, but is there anything I can do for you?" I said, "Yeah, when you get back to San Diego, I want you to go skydiving," because we had been talking about our fears and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, and she did. And I said, "The only condition is I, I want to see before and after pictures, and I want you to tell me about it." Mm-hmm. And she just she had an absolute an absolute blast. But uh, mm-hmm. I think. I think everyone should go and, and go skydiving. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, yeah, I mean, people, I, I've skydived. I was a rock climber for years and people say, well, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm scared of heights. I said, I'm terrified of heights. <laughs> you know, it's probably what makes me a safer rock climber. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I am, I always have been sort of nervous around heights. I'm, I'm my worst on a six foot ladder. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Forget walls in Italy and rock climbing. You know, <laughs> it's a, a six foot ladder terrifies me. So anyway, it's, you know, ultimately I think our relationship with fear, if we can just grapple with that one thing, mm-hmm. not that that is what the book is about in its, in its entire, entirety, but it's an aspect. It's one of the things that holds us back. Yeah, yeah. I I know that that, you know, there are, Again, so many things that I want to say there. I'll just mention a couple of things. That one that you know, I, I think as a, even though I mentioned confidence, um, I'm I'm still thinking that it, exactly what you're saying. It's not that you you don't do you don't go into everything thinking this is going to go great. I get scared. I, I want to swear, but I'm not going <laughs> to. I get really scared and, and apprehensive about a lot of things. It's not as though I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to do this and it's all going to go great. It's not, that's not what I'm meaning by confidence. It's exactly what you're saying. You know, you do things that, that you, you know that it might not go well, but what I'm, I think the point I was, I was trying to make is, and I'm not, I'm not sort of saying this in reply to what you, what you say really in addition to what you were saying. Um, I, I think that when I talk about confidence, it's more about confidence that even if something goes really, really badly, I can get over it. I can overcome the either the the rejection or the you know the the wasted time or you know whatever it is, the negative outcome if it doesn't sure. go as as well as I as well as I'd hoped. So you know that that all really ties in um, really well with with the way I'm thinking about this. I, I totally agree. I think your definition of confidence is right on. And I think even, yeah, I'd take it a step for, further and say, not if it doesn't work, but when it doesn't work. Yes. Because yeah. I, I, none of our endeavors that are worth anything always come off the first time. Mm. You you write three or four first drafts. You, you cross out paragraphs. You, you, you go on a photo shoot and you shoot 3,000 images and you come back with 100 maybes and 12 
Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, these are amazing. Yeah. Do you then say, well, I'm a really bad pho- photographer because I shot all this crap? Mm-hmm. Or is that just the price of admission? It, is our failure, in fact, the best teacher? And I think failure is a more faithful teacher than success. If, mm. if you immediately succeed at something, I wonder, A, if you're pushing your boundaries, if you're not just repeating yourself, and and B, what would happen if you risked a little, maybe failed a couple times, and then learned? There's a statistic that says, you know, all, all the, well, I don't know, a statistic, a, a, a saying, all of these, a lot of these really rich people mm. um, ended up bankrupt once or twice before they became, mm. you know, is that just because all people that are really successful in business um, are just, we're just really stupid at one point. <laughs> um, well, aren't we all? It, mm. It's that they failed so colossally made some very, as quick as they could made some course corrections and learned from that failure. So yeah. that eventually they would become the person that didn't need those particular lessons, but those particular lessons are the most, most faithful yeah. We we always we, I guarantee you, you fall off your bike a couple of times you're going to start to think maybe I shouldn't do that anymore yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. I should stay on top of it and you will be much more highly motivated to learn to ride your bike than um, well I don't know what the alternative is than what I was going to yeah. say than just you know picking it up and riding it the first time but nobody does that the it is the the hard lessons that are the most faithful yeah absolutely so in in a beautiful anarchy. Um, a couple of pages in, you talk about becoming more selfish in that, you know, we're, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but we should extend the same love and grace to ourselves that we do others and even before others. And and that's really, you know, you're saying it puts us in a good place to, to love other people and to, to extend grace to other people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I find... Um I think selfish, selfishness has been given a bad name. Mm. I, I think um, there certainly is a type of selfishness, I think, which people uh, rightly have issues with. Mm. But, but don't you think it's interesting that when someone says, oh, you're just being selfish, that what they, the, the pain point that has ignited that comment is actually their own selfishness? Mm. You, what they're saying is you're not serving me the way I expected you to serve me. Mm. Uh, and, I, and so, I, I, one, I find that interesting. Um, m- more to the point, I think that as an artist, as a human being, we need to acknowledge the things that we want. We have one life. Mm-hmm. What do you want? That doesn't mean you have to act on it. But I think not recognizing your desires and your longings mm-hmm. in any endeavor mm-hmm. uh, sets us up for a, I mean, what's your motivation to do anything if you haven't looked at what you do and do not want to accomplish. What's your roadmap in life? If you, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people probably get married because it's expected of them mm. uh, or, or they they get a regular job because it's expected of them. Mm. And well, I wouldn't want to disappoint my parents. Well, yeah. I, I, I get that, but do your parents, it, do they really want you to live their life, the life they didn't have? And will you be happy when you're 80 years old and on your deathbed thinking, I really wish that I had lived the life I longed for, mm. you know? And I kind of think about the the Monty Python sketch where the guy's a hairdresser and he's like, I don't want to be a hairdresser. I just want to be a lumberjack, <laughs> you know, leaping yeah. from tree to tree. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, and I, as as funny as that example is, I think the freedom of acknowledging your desires and putting yourself first mm. 
puts you in a place where you will create better, more authentic art, where you will raise healthier, more responsible children, where you will create a more ethical and successful business, mm. uh, be a better global citizen. Mm. Um, now, you could, of course, turn that around and say, well, you could also be a selfish guy that's just a total jerk. Well, that's true. There's, you know, but, but they were going to be selfish anyway. I didn't need to address my, my comments to them. I want to encourage people to call it something different. Mm-hmm. Just understand that, that the people in your life that love you and afford you dignity and grace and patience and, and kindness, um, you should afford that to yourself mm-hmm. because it's from there that you will at least identify the things you long for. Mm-hmm. The things you and my business model is very simple. My business model uh, and my manager Corwin and I talk about it regularly is hell yes or no. And I learned this from a guy named Derek Sivers who um, he wrote a book and I I can't remember what it was called, but he he created CD Baby, um, mm. which grew to be a very successful company, eventually gave it away. And, and the reason I love this hell yes or no thing is because it roots my decision making, at least initially, mm. in in my desires and in my longings, what feels right to me. Mm. Uh, it's not the only thing that affects it, but if it's, if it's not a hell, a hell yes, mm. I don't move forward. If mm. I'm not in touch with what do I want to do, mm. right? That doesn't make me selfish in a, in a negative way. That's like saying that Gandhi, when he said, what do I want to do with my life? Said, I want to fight for the independence of India. Well, that's really selfish. You know, I, <laughs> What do you? What would your parents think? Well, his parents were, you know, may not have been on board. Uh, his society may not have weren't on board. A lot of people will not be on board with the things you want to do. But the, will you be happy when mm. you die and realize you were not faithful to your to your nature? Mm. You know, what if Galileo had not done the things he did in spite of the criticisms? What if the impressionist painters had gone a different way because the salon in Paris said that's not how paintings are done? Mm. You know, we there's a lot of should in our life, mm. and I'm not I'm not sure that the, there's really any place for that should. Even mm. I mean, yes, you should pay your taxes, but does that mean you have to? take it like a martyr and pay every single tax instead of getting a corporate uh, status and paying less taxes? Mm. I mean, th- does it does it mean that we can't be open to loopholes and, and doing life the way we want to do it? Mm. Particularly if, and I would say, you know, in, in from my own ethic, you know, it, as long as no one else is getting hurt, you know, um, mm. I think my rights stop at the end of someone else's personal space. And but, you know, the, the selfishness thing, so many people do not accomplish the things in their life or even give time to the things that they want to give, like being a creative person. I, I could spend more time writing if I didn't feel so obligated. Well, are those obligations real or are they perceived? And is it someone else saying you shouldn't be so selfish, by which they mean if you make this change in your life, mm. I, I'm going to have to start picking up some of my own pieces. Mm. I, mm. We're very interconnected and I and it's not an easy way to... It's not a, none of these things are easy, but I, mm-hmm. I think we need to think about them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're in this book, there are some sort of some rabbit trails that get us a long way from photography and creating things, you know, books, mm-hmm. pottery, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think if we don't address the core aspects of who is the creator mm-hmm. and what is his relationship to the world around him, I, I think we have failed to consider that that's actually where our creation comes from and imagine how much better your art would be if you were not 
um, constrained to things you don't need to be constrained to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I think ultimately that gives us better art. It allows us to be better parents, better citizens, better um, artists, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you wreck it, because then you're authentic. Then you're being true to yourself, yeah. rather than just living this lie that you spend a great deal of energy sort of trying to to cover up and trying to make up for your deficiencies, living a way that you were never meant to live. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So I have a I have a note here, and for with a little bit of uh, fear that we it might throw us back into a something that we've already covered. <laughs> at one point, I'm on, not scared. It, <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> at one point in in the book, you use the phrase "the chronically employed," and I just wanted to say that I love that term. I'm <laughs> I'm going to be using that. It's uh, it's brilliant. The chronically employed. Well, you know, for so long, my, my parents would would say, you know, when are you going to get a real job? Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, you know, I ran off to theology school for five years and then I became a comedian for 12. And I mean, I've never had a job. I, yeah. I have always worked. That's not true. I've had some part-time little things earlier on in life. But as it really is an adult, I've never had gainful employment. But but I, I think we we make a mistake when we think that a job and work uh, are the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I have meaningful work that, that makes me money and I run a business, but I, I don't see it as a job. I right. see it as my life's work. And and I think people would be happier. Not everyone wants to do that, but you can still do your life's work in the context of being employed by someone else. Um, I just, I would love to see people drop this whole job thing and ref- look at the pieces of their life and go, you know, this part of my life is is my work. Mm. And and work gives us meaning. I, I don't I don't want to make it seem like creativity is just this kind of anarchic free for all, this kind of loving with the muse. Mm. Um, it's it's hard work. It yep. really is. Yep. Um, but I, I do because I've never been in that position. I kind of I do see chronic employment uh, with <laughs> I sort of eye it with a little bit of suspicion and wonder what how does the other half live? You know, I can't imagine <laughs> being at work at eight o'clock in the morning and coming home at, at five and I mean when would I nap I, yeah. I just I, I fail to understand the concept yeah well that's something else I mean you you just touched on that I when I first started doing this both myself and my wife had a had a problem with um the work ethic of someone that's um you know self-employed however we call it running your own business because I would uh, you know, obviously, I, I get up. I, we have breakfast. I I generally actually check email for anything urgent at the moment I wake up. I I pick the iPhone up, have a quick flick through, and make sure there's nothing that I haven't got to jump onto before breakfast. And then we'll have breakfast, and then the laptop comes over, and I'll spend another hour downstairs. And then I come up into the office, um, and um, you know, we 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 have a routine. But there were times when you know, I mean, I, I work so hard most of the time that you you can get worn out, and it, I've even when I was in my old job as a as a manager managing, um, you know, IT and engineers, I would say to people, you know, you got to make sure that you give yourself time to rest, and if you don't rest, then you you know you're not going to be as productive as you would be anyway. And what you just said, you know, when am I going to have time for a nap? I we had a real problem with you know sometimes you just have to um, walk away from it, give yourself an, an hour. Um, to to just calm down, to put to rethink and to to reset even, and you mentioned in the book, you know, the, you you you're free in the life that you have. You're free to have a nap in the middle of the day or to go for a walk. Um, that was something that I do now, but 
um, you know, if I really feel that I need to reset, I might go for a walk around the block down the river or I might even like keel over on the sofa for half an hour. But it's, you know, it, it's one of those things that you really, um, from the chronically employed perspective, you can't do. You know, you don't think it's not something that you're able to do in a normal job. But in this way of life, it's it. I think it's not only acceptable, it's something that you you should give yourself permission to do because it generally you know, I, I can often come back from one of those walks or even come back from 10 minutes in the shower with the answer to something that I have been struggling with for the whole week. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, and I, th- I think whether you work for someone else or not is not relevant. I, I mean, it is in the sense that if you work for yourself, you'll have greater freedom for that nap. But ultimately, in terms, I, the Industrial Revolution did us no favors. Huh. You know, it, it set us on a treadmill that people have been trying to escape from ever since. And um, one of the books that, I, that I'm sort of pretty crazy about is Tim Ferriss's Four-Hour Workweek. Mm. And one of the things I, I love about it is it just, it takes sort of this unconventional approach. And and encourages people to work uh, smarter, not harder. Mm. And it looks at people that have have convinced their employers to let them either work entirely from home and telecommute as a full-time mm. lifestyle or to mm. do it part-time, you know, maybe on a Friday and a, and a Monday, giving you a longer weekend. Yeah. And people are more efficient. They get more done in a better quality yeah. when they do it according to their own creative rhythms. Yeah. I know, for example, that I am absolute garbage from sort of lunch to three o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes mm. it's sort of one o'clock to four. But that there's a space in the afternoon that my brain just goes, you know what? I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. And that's the time that if I push through the work, I would I would get the work done, but it would not be of the best quality. Mm-hmm. If I abandon the work and go for a walk, have a workout, have a nap, mm-hmm. um, meet a friend for a drink, and then resume that work, mm-hmm. the, qual- the, the work that I might have got done in that three hours will take me maybe an hour and a half, mm-hmm. and it will be better. Yeah. So if, and, and everyone will be different. Everyone will work according to different, you know, maybe you need to, uh, some work you could like, for example, if I'm in a, in a period where I'm writing, I will generally get up in the morning, have my coffee and I will write. Mm. Um, and because the, the morning is a good time for me to do that. Mm. Uh, I can also do it in the evening, but in the middle of the day, I can't, mm. I can do in the middle of the day, other tasks that are less creative, like reply to email. I don't need to be creative when I reply to email. I just need to reply to them and get them off the shelves. So, uh, so I've become very careful, very intentional about my use of time. I won't check my email 300 times a day. Mm. I'm getting, I, I mean, I still check it more than I should, but I'm getting better at it. I'm getting much better at checking Facebook and staying on task when I check Facebook to not go into this sort of that home feed where it's just all a bunch of random, you know, ramblings from people that, you know, you call your friends, but you've never actually met. Um, <laughs> Because you you get sucked into this kind of thing, and then you get sucked into comments, and soon half an hour is gone, and you're angry. Mm. And <laughs> I am I'm learning to identify what my own rhythms are, and I think anyone can have that. I think even if you work a job a full time job, you can recognize where your rhythms are, reschedule your day, and most people I think even have the freedom to go to their their boss and say, you know, can I make some particular changes in the way that I work in order to be more productive, mm. and and 
ultimately maybe that leads to you being allowed to telecommute one or two days a week, mm-hmm. freeing up some of that time. And I mean, mo- most people that if the, you telecommuted Monday and Friday, you could get all your work done on Monday and have Friday off or yeah. vice versa, because yeah. we tend to be a little more motivated when suddenly there's something to be gained yeah. rather than just, well, I've, I've got to stay in this office for eight hours no matter what. So I may as well just stretch it out. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. At one point in the book, you make the uh, you, you make a point about the difference between pain and harm, and I this is one of those another place where I'm sitting there nodding my head, thinking, "Wow, that's just I you know I can't couldn't agree more." Can you talk to us a little bit about that that difference that you talked about in the book? Yeah, I, th- I think we we generally fear hurt. Uh, we organize our daily lives, whether it's the artistic endeavors or just our relationships or whatever. We, we organize them in such a way to minimize hurt. And we spend a lot of fear on whether we, something will or will not hurt. Mm. And I think that a lot of our, um, a, a lot of that would be reduced if we could understand that the things that hurt us, um, A, uh, in relation to what I said earlier, you know, our failures are, are most often our best and most faithful teachers. Mm. Uh, failure is always accompanied by hurt, mm. uh, or almost all. I don't know when failure is not accompanied by hurt. It certainly is in my case mm. in some fashion, whether it's emotional or whatever. Yeah. Um, but does it does it does it hurt to get a a, a a stinging critique from someone that mentors you that then pushes you into a place of greater honesty and vulnerability and making the best work of your life. Mm-hmm. Yes, it hurts, but is it, 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 I mean, it's, is it harmful? Absolutely not. In fact, it's beneficial. Mm-hmm. And where I had this realization and where I sort of reference it in the book is specific to my, my own recovery from this accident and getting massage therapy. And, and, you know, people hear that I go for massage once or twice a week and they say, Oh, it must be nice. <laughs> Lady, if you knew what they do to me, yeah. uh, when I'm on that massage table, uh, it, it hurts a great deal. It's not a relaxing Swedish massage. They are stripping layers of muscle apart. They're stripping scar tissue off of, of bone. I mean, they're, they're doing things that um, were I not trusting of the process, I would be lying there screaming. Yeah. But when you trust and the fear goes away and you go, you know what, this, is, this does hurt, but it's not going to harm me. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, it may do me some really needed good in either in my creative life or, or in my personal life or whatever. Um, so if, if we could step back and just even count to 10 and ask ourselves, is this thing that I so fear, is it, and I know it's going to hurt, but is it going to harm mm. or is it just going to be, cause it's just a pain. is just a sensation. I mean, your brain tells you that, you know, life as you know, it is over, but mm. it is just a sensation. Mm. And if you are not fearful, I, I have found that I can lie on that massage bed and uh, my massage therapist, Tessa can do some really painful, painful things to me mm. that, that I, I can almost relax myself into. I'm not quite there yet, but mm. it's, I don't clinch up. I know, yes, this is going to hurt like a like a, a bugger, but it's not not going to hurt me. Mm. I mean, it's not going to harm me. Yeah. And and that difference for me has made a, it has been significant in everything that I've done. When I realized that, yes, I might fail at this, mm. and yes, it might hurt. But it's not going to harm me. In fact, it may do me benefit. And that allows me to go in. You know, when I talk about courage being the willingness to act in spite of our fear, it gives me a little bit of a push. It's something behind me going, go on, you can do this. It, it might hurt, but 
the hurt part is kind of all in your head, except for the times I end up in hospital. Um, <laughs> and, and even then, you know, did, did I come out of that? Let's refer back to this idea of the hero's journey. Mm. Did I come out of that with a better story? Yes. Did the hero grow? Yes. Did he come back with the magic sword or did he slay the dragon? Yeah, he did. Mm. And so because I, it's so much more important for me to live a great story than just to watch one on the television, mm. I, I'm willing to at least allow myself to see where these adventures are going to go. And mm. if, I can, if I can look at the potential um, hurt and ask myself, is it, is it just hurt or is it harm? That gives me one more way of making my decision. Mm. You know, do do I want to get go all in on this, mm. or, or or do I need to be a little more cautious? I am all for for being cautious when caution is due. Mm. I think more often than not, we're over cautious. We're unduly con- cautious in the areas in our life that that would reap really big benefits, yeah. and probably where the the resulting hurt or harm mm-hmm. wouldn't be that significant. It's yeah. in a lot of cases, it's worth the risk. It's mm-hmm. just like falling in love. What if she rejects me? Is it going to hurt? My God, is it going to hurt? No, no. You know, it'll feel like someone ripping my heart out of my my chest. Will it harm me? Well, that's kind of a matter of what I how I react. That's yeah. my choice. Yeah. Um, but is it worth the risk? Mm. Oh. I guess everyone's got to answer that for themselves. But you know, it, when people say, "Is it better to have loved than lost than never to love love at all?" I think, "Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Is that really a question?" What human being says says uh, no? It's better to just protect yourself and never connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the, you as you as you were talking there again, you mentioned um, trust. You know, in your in your uh, your. Th- therapy ma- masseur or however you would call her but you know that you you said that because you trust her you're you're okay with that process and mm. if you hear from someone that you don't know you don't know even whether they're a, a half decent photographer or, or whatever and someone t- tells you that your image is crap you know it you think okay well you know so yes that that could be devastating to some people but if you if you hear from someone that you really trust and they say that your image is crap, then that's going to, you know, you, you actually, you're going to react to that in a much different way. You might not think it is. And if you love your art and you, and you're happy with what you're creating, then even if someone that you really trust tells you it's crap, I don't think you need to change it. But, um, I think that it's, it's important when we, when we ask for feedback on our work, that that you get it from someone that you trust, um, and that's the part that I just thought about as you were, as you had mentioned that, you know, just, if you unless you trust the person that you're actually getting feedback from, you I really think that it's you know you don't know where if uh, conversely if it's not someone that you trust you don't know where that advice or that feedback's coming from it could be from malice or you know from envy or whatever uh, people react yeah. To, yeah. Absolutely. It's a great point. And it loops back into, you know, another conversation in the book about the voices that we listen to. Mm. And I and I think absolutely. I, I think one of the reasons that we just get so upset when anybody critiques our work mm. is that we're actually more <laughs> we're more in love with our ego than we are with the work. We we are more concerned that our ego is um that we are told that oh my gosh you're exactly you're exactly this amazing artist mm-hmm. rather than yes you're you you are a a really good artist but this is beneath you mm-hmm. and rather than saying you know what you're absolutely right 
let's talk about how I can make this better, mm. our ego gets hurt. And, and that's, you know, that's up to every individual what you want to do with your ego. But my kind of feeling is my ego doesn't need any protecting. Mm. And it, that doesn't mean, again, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean yeah. I don't see the red mist like everyone else does when someone says something about my work. But the question is, can this be helpful? Mm. What can I make of, and I, I feel that about everything that happens in life. Can I, rather than reacting and being a victim or whatever, can I use this? Can mm. I learn from it? Can the hero of this particular journey get a little further ahead by that by that nugget? And there may be something in that criticism, even if it's spoken out of jealousy or malice, there may be something in there. Mm. Or maybe there's not. Maybe I look at it and go, you know what? That's just full of, that guy's full of crap. <laughs> and I didn't invite. And I, so I think there's also a place for being very intentional about the voices that we listen to and, yeah. and inviting people. Because let's face it, you ask a million photographers their opinion about your photograph, you're going to get a million different answers. Yeah. Do they matter? No, mm. they don't. They don't matter at all because your work is not going to be for everyone. It mm. truly won't. So the person that you want to ask is the person that you respect, that does work that you love, even if it's not the same kind of thing mm. remotely. Mm. Someone that's a, a, an amazing potter and you see something human and very sort of, um, you know, wabi-sabi in their, in their, their work, mm. and you want that in your photography. Mm. Yeah. That's when you you bring your work to that person and say, can you tell me how this work speaks to you? Tell me what you see mm. and take that feedback. Mm. But the the person that comes uninvited into our life and just kind of rains on our parade, mm. you just need to have the the kind of the fortitude to just say, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you feel the obligation to tell me what you think about my work. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I'm actually listening to different voices right now mm. and, and be kind of ruthless about it. And um, I think more importantly, one, one of course is that we choose the voices we listen to either for, for good or for, for like, or, or don't choose, like intentionally choose the ones we don't listen to. Mm. But, but I think in all of that, we need to become very good at hearing our own voice because isn't that why we're here? I mean, isn't that why we're creating these things is to do it in a way that aligns with who we are. Yeah. And so, so many people listen to so many voices and they drown out our own voice. Our own voice is just this one little, little voice that gets lost in the crowd because mm -hmm. we're listening to all these other voices. We're on 500 PX or Flickr or, or, or God help us Facebook and Twitter asking people for opinions, you know, <laughs> and there's this new website out there right now called Pixauto, I think it's called, mm. and people are submitting their images. They're they're getting paid. It's it's allegedly a micro stock agency. It's like nano stock, mm. and they're getting paid almost nothing. But but people are being encouraged to kind of here's three images, you know, vote vote for the best one kind of thing. And people are are twittering and facebooking. Ah, oh, my image just won the you know won three <laughs> best images on Pixauto, and I'm thinking. I mean, that's, that is the worst possible place to be getting advice because yeah. one, they're, they're all a bunch of people that are competing for, for, you know, likes and the, the few dollars that they might earn. Yeah. Um, and, and two, nobody there understands what you're trying to accomplish. Right. You know, they, they, how can they say whether this is or isn't a successful photograph? Mm. I mean, you could do one that looks like just like anything that Elliot Irwood or Steve McCurry or Dorothy Lang created, and people would go, oh, that's amazing. That wins a Pixado. <laughs> uh, okay, but is it good art? Is it, And more importantly, is it your art? Yeah, yeah. It may look very much like Steve McCurry's Afghan Girl. It might be better than Steve McCurry's Afghan Girl, but is that the point yeah. of art? I mean, I have a 
chapter called Winning at Yoga. I mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. we, you know, I, really, this competitive stuff is such a waste of our creative energy. Yeah. When we start looking around at everyone else and comparing ourselves, that we are looking in exactly the wrong direction. We're not looking at our art and at ourselves. Mm. Forget how good your stuff. I mean, did Picasso ever wonder how good his stuff was next to, I don't know, Monet or, or someone that had painted a hundred years before him or uh, maybe, mm. but it certainly didn't get in the way of him creating the thing that he created. You know, if everyone else had kind of weighed in and, and not liked Picasso's uh, cubist stuff, mm. would he have continued in that vein or would he just kind of, ah, you know what, not everyone in my Facebook group likes this and I should probably <laughs> go back to painting flowers and faces you know, that look like human beings. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and we would have missed out on Guernica and, and all of these things that Picasso gave us in terms of an ability to see things in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, th I, th I, it's, we're all, of course we're all prone to it. Of course we're all tempted by it, but I think we need to be intentional about it and say, I will not listen to this voice because mm -hmm. it's not doing me any, any good. We could all reclaim that time we spend on Facebooks. God knows we'd be better doing our art than talking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. Well, you know what, I, I realize it's your Sunday evening and we've, we've gone way over an hour, so I, I think we should probably start to wrap it up at this point. <laughs> For the sake of the listeners. <laughs> no, oh God, are they almost well, done yet? No, you know what, I know, I, know, <laughs> I know that the listeners are going to enjoy this as much as I have and I could sit here for the rest of the morning. So, But um, we'll, we'll start to wrap it up. Um, I, you know, to finish, uh, for me at least, you know, that I, I feel as though anyone and everyone that has uh, an interest in not only leading a, a creative life, uh, but a, a good life, anyone. It, I mean, this, this book, and I'm, I'm not doing the blowing smoke thing again, um, really, from, from the bottom of my heart, I mean this absolutely sincerely, that I believe that this book is, is world-changing, it, and it's, uh, it's probably going to be one of the most important photography, creative, and even, like, one, uh, living your life, uh, a better life, uh, genre books of probably at, at least of the decade, if not larger. I think it, you know, it really has. Um, it was a pleasure to read. Uh, you, you know that. I mean, I, I'm not a, a, a fast reader. I, uh, I, I enjoy reading, but I, I didn't read much as a kid, and as a result, I'm actually a really slow reader. And when I, you know, I'd, I'd said that I would send you some, uh, some comments on the book and I, I read it. I, put, I actually put three days aside to read it because I know that I'm such a slow reader. And I started after breakfast one morning and I finished um, in the middle of the evening. It took me a full day, but I couldn't, I literally couldn't put it down. It was, it was one of those books that you, you've got to know what's on the next page and it keeps you, keeps like propels you through the book. Um, I just think it's it's such a great uh, piece of literature. Um, so well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And and actually, it's given me an idea for marketing it because you know it's like read this book, get two two days of your life for free. <laughs> well, I did. I gained two days of my life last week, and I was able to go off and do something creative with, with that yeah. as well. But just just the fine print, of course, is that you can't apply it at the back end of your life. So. <laughs> It's yeah, cumulative. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And as always, it's uh, it's been really uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you.
Well, thank you very much for your time, David. And uh, mm-hmm. people will uh, obviously, if you if you listen to this, um, we'll have links to go over and buy the book. On uh, I'll, we'll, I'll put this in the blog post. Uh, if you go to mbp.ac/slash424, you'll be able to go uh, jump over and and grab your copy. But it's it's right there on Craft and Vision as well. Um, it is, and and you know, if there's if this if the book kind of sparks things, uh, Martin, I've I've also started a website, a beautifulanarchy.com. dot com. Oh, and uh, and my my hope on that is that it will become sort of a place. As you know, a lot of the stuff I write on my my own photography blog these days is you know <laughs> much more about life and about this creative stuff than it is about photography specifically yeah. and uh, and so I'm I'm hoping that this will become a hub and actually it's already populated with something like you know 20 articles and desktop wallpapers and and that sort of thing that's uh, that is all new content for people that that yes they are photographers but they also see themselves in sort of a bigger context of being a creative person and and so there will be conversations about how we create and and even the sort of the solopreneur kind of kind of stuff about people that are creating their their living as well as their life yeah excellent excellent i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well thank you um so you obviously i mean this is it's not a photography book as such it's not filled of, of beautiful pictures um it's it's a paperback so people can also get it on kindle as well as the PDF, I believe. Yeah, they can. So there's there's a paperback that we sort of decided that you know one of the things about traditional publishing is that they kind of <laughs> they want to make their money everywhere they can, and and uh, so if you go to Within the Frame online and you buy a, a paper book, you will be charged equally, if not more, for the, the same PDF. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not done that. We have said if you buy your if you buy a paperback, we will give you a free. Uh, PDF, which is good because the post office takes time, and this way you can start reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so on craftandvision.com uh, or on beautifulanarchy.com, you can buy the paperback and the PDF with worldwide shipping included for thirty dollars. And the PDF will be sort of you'll get a download link immediately and can start reading, or you can buy the PDF alone for um, for ten dollars. Uh, or if you're a Kindle. Type you can go to the Kindle store to Amazon.com or Amazon.whatever, and on uh, on there you can download a beautiful anarchy for your Kindle. Wow! Also so. for something ridiculous like nine ninety nine or nine dollars and seven cents, depending on where you live. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So so for nine point something dollars, you can change your life. <laughs> go go and do that, folks. It's uh, really it's it's one of those life changing books. So and I'm and I'm Thank not you, just man. saying that because David's a friend. It it really is. <laughs> It's kind of you. So really, thanks a lot, David. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure. And we'll... Uh, Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, hopefully uh, before too long. Perfect. Thanks a lot. Wow. It's always a pleasure to speak with David. And that was probably one of the best conversations we've had so far. So I really, really hope that you're going to enjoy that. I'm sure you will. And I'm sure you'll enjoy A Beautiful Anarchy as well. Before we finish, I'd like to just quickly mention that following the success of the in-studio Pixels to Pigment workshop that we did right here in my Tokyo studio in May this year, we have set up another date. The next Pixels to Pigment in-studio is going to be August 23-24 this year. So if you're interested, come over to the, the... I'll put links in the blog posts, but go directly to the P2P page is mbp.ac slash p2p, p number 2p. And also we have just one space left on this year's Iceland tour from September 22 to October 3. So 
If you're interested in coming with us, there's one chance left. So uh, go over to mbp.ac slash Iceland 2014 to see some details of what we'll be getting up to and to book your place if you're interested. So thanks very much for listening today. Remember that you can find me on Google+, Twitter, Facebook, etc. And links to everything that I'm up to are at martinbailiphotography.com. So do drop by and take a look. I'll be back next week with another episode. But in the meantime, you take care and have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye.